What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I'm in Central Park, Saturday afternoon. I tried to record this a little earlier. I was walking down Riverside Park on the west side of Manhattan and there were many, many helicopters and a lot of traffic noise. I was like, that's all going into the microphone. So I stopped and yet here we are. I'm near one of those main busking areas. I don't know what it's called. I th it's sort of just, hang on, where am I? It's just maybe a hundred yards south of that lake where you often see the movies cut to and people are rowing. It's a fun little row to do, by the way. I do recommend it. I guess we're about like a little northeast of Sheep's Meadow where a lot of, a lot of people hang out in the summer for the day and I'm facing south or downtown and the sun's coming in maybe 20, 30 degrees at me at about, what are we, 2 p.m. It's beautiful. It's about six degrees Celsius, weather forecast in the house. Weather job done, kids, weather job done. Got lots of questions today. I decided to ask people on Twitter if there was anything on their minds and so between Twitter and Instagram, I think there are about 15 questions. We'll go through them relatively quickly. If you're new to these, yeah, they ramble. There's a lot of rambling, but for me, this is play, practice, therapy, and there's something social about it for me, even though it's a monologue. There are moments where I wonder if I'm becoming like those dictators of certain countries that have their own TV stations. They tend to be, tend to be older men. Maybe that's my journey dictator with his own TV station. I hope not. <clears throat> you can be the judge about that. I've got an event on Wednesday, which is also the night when the Kickstarter for my book ends. The event is called Strategy Upon the Strategist. I haven't pushed it too much, but I'm, I'm hoping a few people come and that it's a bit of fun. It'll be different. There's no presentation, but I'll still run you through the basics of what I think strategy is and how to do it. It's just going to be weirder than that. You can find tickets on Eventbrite, just search for strategy upon a strategist. It's $40, I think on the, the last walk and talk I did, I said 35. It's 35 including a book, which you can get on the Kickstarter. Just search for strategy, Is your words. Let's get into it. There might be some other updates that pop out, but I want to get into these questions. Some of them are pretty big actually. There's some large intellectual and philosophical questions and then there's more practical things about going for job interviews, writing insights and things like that. So we're, we're covering a range of thoughts today and I want to reiterate that asking questions or having a question answered is not about high or low status. I ask hundreds of questions and every now and then I'm in situations where I'm like, oh, the person I'm talking to, the person I'm asking questions of, they only answer questions because they're used to being superior to people. And so when I put out the call through Instagram or Twitter, it's not like, who's got a need for me to solve? It's just, I don't know, I want to kick some stuff around because I, I want to play, I want to feel connected to what I'm trying to do in life, which doesn't just have to be through this, but sometimes it is. And as always, I appreciate your quiet little DMs and emails about these topics. Sometimes I put these things into public and I, <laughs> so that I regret them immediately, I'm just like, oh God. What was that? And every now and then, a few days later, people will say thank you for talking about a particular topic. And I'm like, I, I talked about that topic? Oh, oh, that's cool. I should do that again. Stream of consciousness. You never know what's going to fall out of your brain and then your mouth. Tony Clement. We work together at Leo Burnett in Sydney. He's one of my favorite people in the world. And then we worked at Big Spaceship together. And now he's uh, running around the world doing his own thing based out of Australia. He asks a huge question to kick this off. What's the importance of faith in one's journey for intrinsic growth? So we've got to split what those words could mean or what that word could mean into at least two. One is faith, capital F, as in organized religion with a point of view and a way of living that's presented to you that you must conform with. I'm less able to talk about that. I could, but I'll probably misspeak. What I'm personally interested in is, I guess, the more secular idea of faith in that if you want to grow, which means that you've got a reason to live, a reason to keep living and a reason to learn and improve, that's all growth. Uh, that's all faith. That's all faith. To think that you can grow, that's faith. To then think about where and how you want to grow 
and to also appreciate the things that you grow at along the way that you didn't expect to grow at, that's all faith. To commit to doing acts that will allow you to explore the things you want to grow into, that's huge faith. That's all there is. The opposite of that to me is more of a passive life. And I've had phases of this sort of stuff. I've had phases where I didn't know why I was alive, long phases. Didn't know what I was doing. I knew that I liked to write. I knew that I liked music. I knew that I liked interviewing people from when I was a teenager. Even younger, a lot of that. <laughs> Maybe not the interviewing, but the other things. And I was like, yeah, but it doesn't really fit in the world. And I don't fit in the world. So what do I do with that? And at the same time, I would then go, I went out and made a magazine and worked my ass off. But it wasn't always, I didn't know what I was chasing sometimes. And part of it was that I was probably trying to run away. I was trying to distract myself from the feelings and some of the traumatic stuff that happened around my people growing up, the way that we traumatized, the way that we traumatized and traumatized each other. So it's all to me, faith is critical. Ferris Yaakov shares a quote from uh, MIT Sloan, and it's, this, here's the quote. When leaders decide how to engage politically, they need to consider the degree to which the issue is materially important to the company's financial importance. So I haven't read the full article. I saw that there was a diagram. I think that I think it's advice, not just analysis. I think it's advice to people in management about how to and whether to get involved with with uh, things that are political. I don't know what's not political, by the way. I find the nuances around this strange. These ideas of sort of these ideas that largely come through left or right wing media. Uh, these, these words, these ideas that we just repeat without even really thinking about them. So that, you know, if you talk about something that might matter to you about gender or race, someone else might have been taught to say, well, that's very political. And then they might be suggesting that the idea of being political in the environment you're in right now, which say could be an office, is inappropriate. It's a wonderful way to cancel out critical thinking. It doesn't mean that the other person's trying to do critical thinking because they might be preaching some kind of talking points from another side of uh, the aisle. Just wish there weren't aisles, that's my point. Farah says, that's how you know it's a point of principle, the principle of course being money. So I think he's pointing to either the advice and or analysis of people in management only talking about things that are political, if there's a purpose or a principle to it, but he's saying that the principle is money, and I, I get that. I don't even know if I have a problem with it, you know, I, I think it'd be great if humans in companies were more humane and humanity oriented, but companies are sociopathic entities. They have human rights, largely speaking, but they get away with things that humans can't get away with. And then they reward often, or they, I think traditionally they have rewarded a lot of sociopathic behavior, behavior without empathy. And the people who get rewarded often will talk more about the company than the people, so they perhaps feel empathy towards a company. It's a tricky thing. So then to expect a system that's based on growth and making money and extracting material and resources and value from things and people, to then expect it to be politically woke, I don't know. I don't know if that's a reasonable thing to think. So to me, the problem is not even that a company leader would only talk about politics or something political, whatever that means, right? Because that's slippery. To me, the problem is not that they would only talk about it if it aligns with what their company's interested in, which does make sense. The problem is really like, what, why have we created this system for ourselves in the first place? And what are other ways to live? And how can we do that while knowing that you can't just destroy everything and rebuild? Because it'll just stay destroyed, probably or to rebuild in a very difficult way. So I'm more interested in ideas that are like, here's an alternative to that. You know, I'm personally really interested in creating something before I die that the people who create it can part own. Something that I want to explore more of next year. If you're an expert in those kinds of things, let me know. You can join the dots to what you think I'm talking about because I've talked to some of you about it privately, but I'm not going to get into that right now. I'm using this new microphone, it's a bit of an experiment and it does pick up a lot of noise, so you can probably hear that music quite loudly. Alright, I'm going to start moving. I was a bit shy. I do have my iPhone headphone in my right ear, 
just so I don't look completely strange talking into a black microphone on my jacket or coat lapel. Bruce Matake, how about some thoughts on how a creative slash brand strategy, which should balance present and future in my mind, in his mind, how about some thoughts on how a creative and brand strategy can seamlessly blend into a business stretch thinking strategy, into a business strategy? So how can brand and business strategies align? Well, I think, I don't think that's an entirely difficult thing to do if you believe in ideas like meaning and purpose, but you know I have to define that now I've said it. If you know what you, you want your business to do, and that can change and it can shift, and it can change and shift in huge ways if it needs to do, if it needs to. If you can work that out, so this, for fa the phrase that I use for what I'm trying to do that keeps me on track just enough is I want to help people who think for a living live. It's my journey, it's what I'm trying to do. If I can improve at it, I'll share it. You know, what's the business model for that? And that kind of statement could be a strategy statement, a brand purpose, a, it's not really a brand essence. Brand essence would be shorter. It's how, I, it's, it's how I'm trying to explore meaning and what matters to me. And so that's how a brand and business can work together because you work out what you're about and then you build a business to model around it. Or you, which is con a constant act of discovery, by the way. I actually think that's a really straightforward idea. The problem is that we often get approached with briefs that want us to maybe come up with a new brand strategy to reinvent a brand or to tweak a brand or something that's a little lower level like your campaign strategy which is to take an existing brand strategy and bring it into life based on a particular business issue or issue with audience marketing issue some sort of perception or awareness sales and let's say we get somewhere interesting and then the rest of the business doesn't actually really want to change they just want to stay as they are and most people who run businesses that have been around they will tend to be conservative and want to conserve the way the business is so if you're going to come in and go here's a whole new way to be we're going to shift the business from selling trees into i don't know building mountains I was just thinking about what's happening over in Copenhagen, how there's a ski mountain being built, or has it just been finished? It's being built on top of either a waste or an energy plant. Anyway, point is that that's harder <laughs> when the, the business is already in place. Uh, Forgive me if I get your names wrong. And also on Instagram, I, I just take the handle. I don't use the name. But if I mispronounce your name, I apologize. Uh, Jill Dudones. Jill Dudones. Uh, in 2020, what will be the definition of a strategist? Quote, unquote. Probably the same as it's ever been. <laughs> and you're allowed to have your own definitions. What is a strategist? I think a strategist is someone who tries to solve problems using a combination of information and intuition where there's a constant cycle of intuition informing the need for certain information and then that information updating the intuition. That's typically something to do with solving a problem. You could say it's achieving an opportunity. I just think the brain's wired a little bit more towards staving off problems. I'm not sure if that's science. So I think that's what a strategist will continue to be. The challenge with the title is that everybody uses it. <laughs> and all these words appear in front of it. And often it's not that they're a wrong use of words. It's just that the person using them might not actually do what they think they want to do. They just want to sound more expensive. Mars Murray Calder. 
Also, shout-outs especially to the men who are giving me like ASMR encouragement. It's quite cool. Maybe I'll do an episode soon. I'll just say the word strategy a thousand times. Just mumble it into a microphone. At least put you to sleep. Mari asks, how do you know when it's time to get out of the way and let the young'uns take over? And what should you do instead? Well, there's a lot of questions in there, hypothetically speaking. I think as soon as you are in any situation where you have a level of uh, respect and seniority over people, that's when you want to start sending in the people who are quote-unquote below you to do the work. Not just to do the work, but to like really do the work. If you're just bossing people around, getting them to fetch you stuff. I don't think that's leadership. So I think it's a con constant process of getting out of the way. You'll often see in, I guess, small business books. I don't know if this was in the e-myth, but there are, there's a whole bunch of small business books or just maybe business wisdom in general that talks about trying to fire yourself from one job every year if you're running a company. They don't literally mean from a job with a title, but a set of activities. But to do that, you need to potentially see yourself differently and start seeing yourself more as a coach where I think at least two things are going to have to come from that thought. One is seeing yourself and the key part of your role as what you said, as getting out of the way and, and letting other people take over. To me it's not even about youth per se, it's about people who are trying to get access to the opportunities that you or we've had in life you got to see that as the work build your philosophy around it and ways of working around it second big thing that is riskiest or most difficult is convincing other people you work with that that's the job there's such a clawing back of like let's say you stand up in front of your team or in front of a company and go here's here's what i'm about i think you'll you, you could create a very positive, ambitious, and amazing era for that team. The thing is that people outside that team might struggle with the idea, might feel threatened. You know, I've worked in management teams where they get suspicious of these thoughts because they want to see you boss other people around because that's what they think you have to do. So you have to constantly defend your ideas in public and it can take a year or two for that change to sink in maybe longer you might also need to recruit different kinds of young'uns because not all young'uns are, are, would relate to what I just talked about what you should do instead well I don't know if that's a big question or a focused question if it's focused then I think it's you focus on the operating system making sure good people are coming into it you're keeping good people that they're stimulated that you're fighting good fights within the company, doing whatever you can to uh, get through obstacles and barriers for that team, help them train, learn from themselves, push them. I don't know if everyone's capable or interested in doing what I'm talking about. It's a genre of people. It's probably a minority. It's probably like a third. <laughs> Made that up. But that's what you do instead. And then see if you can create a more vibrant, creative life for yourself through the job, but also outside of the job. I feel like that's the way, that's the journey for a lot of us to do creative work. Get established if you can. It's not easy. Get established, bring other people through, and then make sure you push on. If you don't push on, I think that can cause problems. Psychologically, you might get frustrated. You might miss the tools, being on the tools, so to speak, doing the work, which I still think it's important to do, by the way, but not in a way where you're crowding out your team and cherry-picking the best stuff. That's not cool. Yeah, but if you don't, do, if you don't push on for yourself, which could be with your management team, if you're, if you're in a management team and fortunate enough to have a good relationship with them, get that system cranking inside what exists and then see how you can push. Keep going. And explore it for yourself. I know even even around that uh, 
Edinburgh and Glasgow advertising system, there are people that you and I know who do, who've had that journey. And they might push on by trying to help sell a company and then they try to sell another one. That's just one way of doing that, by the way. Getting involved with the arts, writing books. You know, back in Sydney, my, my boss kind of got to a pretty big level and then started to do a lot of TV shows. Mid to late 30s, 40s. Jordan Calloway. Should there, will there ever be an advertising Hippocratic Oath? Should there be an advertising Hippocratic Oath? Ooh. Sure. I wouldn't mind one for politicians first though. <laughs> I mean, sure, like create it. If that's what you want to do in life, do it, push for it. Try to have people sign up for it problem with advertising versus health or medicine oh hang on there's many problems with uh, health and medicine practices but you know advertising is not really a policed robust profession it is a profession but it's not regulated it doesn't have oversight like CFA CA CPA and various other organizations that set uh, educational and intellectual standards, outline concepts, and then give people a level of credibility that they don't want to lose. Not that that's what a Hippocratic Oath does, does it? No. I'm sort of mixing the. It's a mixed analogy, that one. I just think with these big questions that I just give, I don't know, I don't spend a lot of time in them. I'm like, what can I do? And I don't, I think it's okay to operate at that level. I think it's more sane to operate at that level, even though I, you might hear me express myself talking about systems and corporate entities being sociopathic. What can I do? If you want to do it, do it. Push for it. Animesh Das, how do you get burned out creatives to enjoy work again? Is there a proven approach? I'm going to pretend that question's about <laughs> you and me, as opposed to being about people that we manage. Because I think that's a different context. I think how I'll answer it will be relevant to other people, but it's harder. Burnout stuff, it's something that I've dealt with a lot over the years. You know, I used to work pretty long hours in agencies as well as doing my magazine, had babies 28 and 30 years old, when I was 28 and 30 years old. So sleep wasn't good. And I think the two most, I'm gonna say the two most important things when I think of burnout are having a strong sense of what you're trying to do in life, even if it changes a few months later. Okay, that's, a, that's an anchor that you can come back to. And often we don't know. Or we've bought into someone else's ideas or, you know, we could be going through trauma or we've got huge financial pressure through illness, family illness, mortgages, debts, whatever you've, whatever's going on. And maybe you've made a career decision where you're like, oh, it's gotta be another way, but how do I actually make money from the way that I think is there? So dealing with that riddle, I think is really key to burnout or to navigating the idea of burnout. Two is sleep. If, from what I understand, I'm not gonna quote sources in any of this, but from what I understand, if your sleep is off for a very, very long time and it's unpredictable, that can really, I was gonna say destroy, but it can really affect can really hurt your mental health. Burnout, I think, can also, we can feel burnt out if, even more so, if our sleep's out and we're not sure what we're doing, if we then also don't feel we have control over what we're doing. That's a, that's a, a riddle I think a lot of us have dealt with at some point. We're not really sure if we want to be doing what we're doing. We're working crazy long hours and we don't necessarily have autonomy or the ability to work out how we want to get through that work. 
because the solution to it, and we, you have to pause money and time with some of these conversations. Otherwise, if you can't pause money and time, or you put, you, you put money and time back in later as constraints, but if you can't pause it, you're gonna be potentially just fishing in a shallow pond. But if you know what you're about, you know what you enjoy doing, if you can work out how to sustain yourself and other people who depend on you through food and money, I said money, but at least with food and shelter, then the question can be, it's a privileged question, how do I want to structure my days to do that? What is enough sleep? How do I fulfill my emotional, social, intellectual and physical needs? You know, there are people, for example, who've made f films, many, many films. I'm not going to name the name. Some, sometimes these ideas have come through people who are getting cancelled. <laughs> you might know who I'm talking about. But I remember hearing or reading about a particular pretty well-known film movie maker who wrote for about four hours a day and just did it, every, I think, every day or nearly every day for years and years and years with the aim of making a movie perhaps once a year, once every two years. And I'm sure there's burnout or the temptation to feel or get burnt out along the way. But there's a sense of structure and a sense of certainty and adamantness in face of huge ambiguity. And not just the ambiguity of being alive and what that is, but also doing creative work. Burnout's a big one. I want to think about that a little bit more because I was I felt burnt out for a decade or two. I still feel frazzled from whatever emotional situation I grew up in as a teenager. I feel very frayed. I don't know that if I have a few, but, but the thing is like now that most of the work I do is really aligned with what I want to do, what I think I want to do, and that's all there is, what I think I want to do did like 16 hours the other day and I was like oh my gosh this has really been an amazing day spoke to so many people did all the things that I like doing I did writing I did interviewing for podcast and for research projects a little bit of movement you know my physical uh, I've been a little bit better with the social stuff my physical world is a bit off right now I gotta get that back so I hope there are there are ideas there Oh, this is nice. I'm coming up to the reservoir. I think. Uh, I just had a little pause. I had to get a replacement phone and it's cold and it, one of those two things affected my notes and where I was at, so I don't actually know where I was at, but I'm just going to jump into the tweets and answer some other questions. In Shano asks, how can we approach evaluating what needs to change when more of what doesn't work, doesn't work? What a twisty question, Ian. Twisty, twisty, twisty. I mean, exploring more of what doesn't work, if you're doing it as an experiment with a scientific mind to work that out, then that's okay. I think what's in your question is people are doing stuff that doesn't work they keep doing stuff that doesn't work they don't want to hear that it doesn't work and then you go well, why is that happening and if, if it is happening and usually it'll fall back somewhere deep into the way that their brains are identity how they get incentivized that jobs don't depend enough on change and also certain brains with certain personality traits might congregate in certain types of companies that are change resistant. So perhaps the way to approach evaluating what needs to change is through the external <laughs> research and the only, your own experiments that you could play with knowing that some people are highly change resistant. So then you've got to protect your sanity from that.
John Stoffer. Thought experiment. You're briefing a creative team and limited to disclosing only one demographic attribute about the intended audience in the brief, e.g. male or female, young, old, college, no college, kids, no kids, etc. What's the one defining attribute you'd select as proxy for all else? Depends how widely we define demographics, and I'm not an expert on demographics. But if demographics are how we count uh, things about people, <laughs> can, I, can I do that? Do you accept my definition? I, th I think I'd be most interested in political outlook or political belief system. So if I could get a D for Democrat or an R for Republican or an in-between, I'd be curious about that because from what I understand, please check everything that I, well, don't check everything I say, that'd be annoying, but check the things you disagree with or the things that sound especially stupid. I, from what I understand, there can be some kind of correlation to personality traits and brain. So if you're looking at democratic, liberal, progressive people, from what I understand, and I, my brain's going through research, but I'm not going to cite any of it, it's going through articles, they could have all been made up. They tend to be more open-minded, more open to variety, more open to novelty. I think in general, more empathy, more compassion, but it's not to say that any of what I just said is more noble than somebody else. That needs to be clear. Whereas an arc or a conservative, more local, uh, more worried about change, not wanting change, wanting to be as they are, Now that more local thing comes to life in amazing ways if, you, if you're fortunate enough to travel around America or into some of those, not all, but to some of those environments that could be quite conservative, but they can, some of them really look out for each other. I guess me saying that is giving you a hint of where I stand politically, but I try to look at issues and evidence. I'm just not really impressed at all by politics. That, that would be my political stance. I'm just not impressed with it. I wish it wasn't such a thing as left and right. I wish there was a different way to vote for topics rather than people, I wish personality wasn't such a big part of it, I, w I wish big money wasn't such a big part of it, it's crazy. So did I just cheat? <laughs> like I said, I'm not an expert in demographics. I'm not an expert in many things, but like I, I would, I'd be interested in the person's general political proclivity. John suggests that for him, urban or rural would be his choice. I can understand that. I mean, even getting a list of hobbies or a hobby, you know, if someone's into hunting, you could probably make some generalizations about what else they might be into versus going to art galleries. It's way too easy to misspeak on this particular topic. Okay. Matt Rainoni. How might we get creatives and marketers to believe that sometimes the best solution to the challenge in a brief isn't advertising at all, perhaps an investment in a thing? New product, service, offering, staffing model, staffing model, charitable platform, and so on. And to that point, what skills do our strategists need to sharpen in order to lead that shift? I think the idealistic answer to that is to say that you do research and you find a particular problem and then work out how to solve it, which means you have research skills, that you're able to analyze a problem and able to devise a solution that is non-advertising based that can very quickly talk to business issues, especially sales. So it's that stuff. The problem is that the people who've briefed you might not want to hear any of it because they need five videos in three months. They intellectually might not be interested or uh, able to wrap their heads around what you're talking about, which could be the difference between a more conceptual brain and a more concrete brain, if that's a thing. Probably a bit, a bit of a false dichotomy, but also it is something that a lot of tests measure for, psychology tests. Doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> uh, and you go back to how they're incentivized, you go back to their identity. You know, are they the sort of person who wants to push 
real change through a company or are they just trying to earn their salary to get through to the next year, to get through the next year, do their brand rotation if it's marketing or brand role? But I think the answer to that is simple until you talk about how you sell it into people who don't want it because then you have to explore why they don't want it. A crisis is often how big change can happen. Also, big change might be a misdirection. You know, change takes ages. And all of us who've bought into agencies, they're like, we're changing, we just got, got, there's always this story in the US, we've got the team back together. It's like four or five people who used to work together. Got the team back together. And we need more change agents. Change is difficult. Dotan Bello, not so much a question here, more a plea for empathy. Strategy and creative seem to be reliant on data and testing. I miss my strats, help. Yeah. <laughs> I know, there's no, no question there, but yeah, I, f I feel for you. I feel for you. I mean, it's part of the reason I'm doing what I'm doing right now. And the, the problem isn't that data and testing are the opposite of strategy and creative, it's just that one of those groups for a lot of us seems to have won the arm wrestle. And it's an arm wrestle that is very sales oriented and can make us feel that data and testing are gonna do the thinking for us, which is gonna have to offend us because we think we're there to do the thinking with people. And then the systems and the culture over the past decade are like, oh no, we've, we've got numbers, they'll tell us what to do, we'll find the answers there. Still gotta do the thinking. I think there'll be a little bit of a cultural correction there. I hope so. April G, do you think it's better to take out a large loan and finish school at an, oh God, this is gonna be a difficult question. Do you think it's better to take out a large loan and finish school at an earlier age? Or knowing that you'll be making around the same amount once you have your degree, go part-time and pay for everything up front or continue working until you save enough to pay for it out of pocket? Joyfuls. The question is, why do you have to have so much debt in the first place? Couldn't you go to Germany for a year or two? <laughs> I'm sure there's lessons in English. I mean, a lot of I, I hear stories of a lot of people leaving the states for a year or two to try to pick up education at, without the debt. I know the alumni circuit is extremely attractive. The idea that you just get amazing jobs and amazing life because you somehow are connected to a college that has other people connected to it. Seductive. And I guess there's that hypnosis of college sport here. Deeply hypnotic. It's kind of religious. I think the question is, like, why does there have to be so much debt in the first place? But if you're just career oriented, you want to get a job, get a good education by spending as little as possible and try to get into the industry while also making stuff so that you're continually expressing yourself and testing your ideas in the world. Alright, decided to sit down and, and finish the rest of these questions. Like I just upgraded my phone. Really kind of been frustrating the past few phones. Dying, sound doesn't work, batteries die quickly, especially in the cold. And then I looked down at my questions, I'm like, hang on, where did 200 questions just disappear to? And I worked out how to get them back. But it was freaking out, I was slightly, slightly cranky, but uh, I, I spared you of that. It's just sometimes I need to flow, sometimes I need to get some stuff out, and I don't want the technology to get in the way. Len WP3 asks, how have you worked with account people resistant to planning? So that's a new concept to me that I've only really, ex mainly experienced in the US. Uh, there were remnants of it, or you'd see hints of it in some of the places I worked in in Sydney. It's just that the places I worked at in Sydney had very strong account planning cultures. So it'd be strange for you to go there as an account person to not want account planning. Uh, and the hints would show themselves in the form of perhaps an account person excludes the rest of the company when they're getting a presentation or a deck together and like if you're in a place that has it takes its creative and strategic output seriously as well as the people who are specialists in those roles which is not to say that you talk down account people i don't like the word suits for example i don't, I don't i think everyone's got an important role to play and got to work out how to work together but if you're in a place that really does value those two disciplines maybe that's fewer than back in the day, I really don't know. Then 
you, you hear about it pretty quickly if you quote unquote misbehave. Uh, agencies that are new, so types of agencies that are new to account planning, I think this happens a lot, where account planning can get treated as back office discipline, uh, or someone turns up and wants an insight like they want a hamburger or an upfront for a deck that they've already written and presented, for example. That stuff, I can't stand that stuff. I try to understand it and then I'm like, why is it always me trying to have to understand other people? Why can't they understand me? I, I, I go through those sorts of loops or have gone through those loops over the years. I think the first thing is to try to solve the back office issue. So how do you get time with a client? You know, who's putting you on these accounts? Where, where's that happening? Are they putting you on these accounts for good, right, useful reasons? Or just because they're like, we've got to put account planning everywhere. So basically, does your agency know what it's doing? Doesn't know what it's doing with the discipline? Uh, we've all been, in, a lot of us have been in places where we've had to try to sell in the discipline repeatedly, and then you discover that for five or 10 years, there were other people doing that, and they're no longer there. So that's important, but I don't know. Like, how do you actually force change? And so when I've been in those environments, I do think through forcing functions. What are one or two things that can happen to change this? My argument is to make strategy and account planning default. Make it default in the systems so that when someone's pricing a project or a retainer or a scope, it's there and they have to argue out of it, managed by exception. What I don't like is, especially in large places, a head of planning or a group of planners having to chase projects and you get put on them because the client's threatening to leave, they're at round three, four, five of presentation and nothing's sticking, or there's a pitch. And people are like, yeah, fine. I guess they'll write a cute little upfront, say something smart, whatever. But then you win the project, or you, you keep the client, and all of a sudden there's no money. And if you're in a place that's PL infatuated, which is probably most places, it doesn't look good for the strategist, and it's not fair. And the culture will probably make it feel it's the strategist's fault. Not a culture fit. Not, it's not working out. You're not operationally capable. Nonsense. The strategist isn't supposed to be those things. They're probably not supposed to be a culture fit either. You would want someone who does the weird work we do to be different. Otherwise, what are you even hiring? And the other hints of that are when people emerge from account management roles into strategy as full-time strategists, which is totally cool. But when you see a whole group of them who aren't doing what I would think is strategy, that to me is just a company not wanting to deal with different people. So how have you worked with account people resistant to planning? One, try to make it default in the systems. And if your company doesn't want to hear that message, you're going to struggle. Why would they hire you unless they want you to be successful? And you're like, well, let's just make sure 10% of most scopes have some kind of planning money on it. And that there's a weekly meeting or maybe it's every day, I don't know. Depends how big the company is, how many projects they're going through. There's at least a weekly meeting looking at what projects are coming in and who's getting put on them with clear deliverables. And then, have they met the client? Track that kind of stuff. Is there a difference in the work that you're doing and the team morale and the client morale when a strategist, not just strategy, but when a strategist is involved? Can you track that? And then would you need someone else to help you track that? Then there's just the individual quirks and how individuals uh, either see their work and or are incentivized for their work and trying to work through those things, build up trust, making sure that you as a strategist isn't domineering and mean and critical and just difficult and passive aggressive and moody all the time. I'm just describing myself, by the way. I'm joking, joking. Felix Jovin, what's your take on all these data-driven insight platforms like Crimson Hexagon? I haven't spent a lot of time in them recently. I was around that early batch. Could I put Radiant 6 in that early batch? Uh, and in Australia, they were often just like a $1,500 to $2,500 per month license. That was a lot of money for us. And I don't know if we ever got it at the agencies I was in up until eight or nine years ago. It started to appear around then, but it was a it was a bit of an ask, and then the global agencies, or the global agency management, would try to strike deals that we get we would get access to. Uh, and you know, I have usually either hired or worked with heads of data and analytics or senior data and analytics people. Listen to them for what they need, what they want. Personal bias is to trawl through the stuff myself. It's qualitative. I want to see the patterns and see the words because sometimes the way that data and anal analytics can work, and yes, it depends on the people doing the work and the questions you're asking, but sometimes I, it just aggregates things in a way where I lose the edge. So whatever, whatever gets you there, uh, 
I don't have a, like whatever you, whatever you need. Um, I'm not dogmatic with that particular thing because I know personally I still want to go through what people are saying. I want to look at a hundred customer reviews, for example. I want to talk to fifty people, twenty people. And this is the best tips to stand out when applying for your first strategy role. Um, plain English. <laughs> I mean, when you're applying, so that assumes that maybe you've had some introduction, you're getting documents together, sending them through to a person or through to a system, that that system is like, tick, we'll try to qualify whether this person is worth spending time with, and there's a call perhaps, Skype, and then potentially a meeting, depends if you're located near the place or not located near the place. I think it's just important to be disobedient and obedient, to have a point of view, but to not appear, appear crazy arrogant, to show that you're really interested in this without throwing what I call a passion tantrum. You know, I don't need a lecture about how passionate you are for 30 minutes, because if you're passionate, you would have done something, because passion does. So show me like two or three things that you did. A lot of the portfolios that I see when you're coming out of college, if, if you've done a portfolio, they're usually kind of straightforward, you know, and, uh, and then if I, if I push into them, so here's what not to do, if I push into them a bit, which I do, just to see what someone says and how they respond, uh, try not to back out of the thinking by going, oh, that's because the, the team dynamics are really difficult. It just shows that you put together a portfolio that you don't think is very good if your immediate answer is, is to get defensive when someone actually asks you a question, not a, doesn't criticize you, but they ask you a question. You know, okay, so talk, well, how did you find that insight? Make sure you've done some research as well. <laughs> Make sure you like, I have spoken to 50 to 100 people during my studies, or at least 10 or 20, preferably more than that. Yeah, I think there's enough advice in, in there. I am Jorge Carrizo. Any advice for strategists and strategy directors starting at a new agency? Also, apologies for my accent. Mm, you know, it's, it's just working out how you can be useful more often than not without being condescending, without talking too much about how things were done elsewhere. I've probably done that in, in places where I felt especially uh, repressed and annoyed. Uh, but I don't think I've done it a lot, but just to do it a little bit in some places will annoy people. Uh, just try to work out how to be useful, how the work happens, what people think is good work, what their goals and expectations are. Often these things aren't discussed at all. Uh, looking at language that people use, I'd probably just write down some of the language people are using and then suggest if it's leading to confusion, hey, we're using about the, you know, these 10 terms quite often, could we just write it down on a piece of paper what we actually mean by them because I think it'll mean that we work better together. You know, working out, it depends on the culture of the place as well, but trying to form bonds with people early on, trying to see if the creative department, if there is one, will actually respond to anything to do with strategy to see if they even know what strategy is or, or even what ideas are, which is not to dismiss creative departments, but definitely work with people who are in quote unquote a creative department who don't know what ideas are. Uh, they might be good at writing video scripts or something, but um, they might not want to work with a strategist, they might resent them, or they've worked with strategists who've not been good or who've been annoying. So you've got to kind of work through all that sort of stuff. M.W. Rowland, how did you develop your skill of creating simplicity? It's an ongoing challenge for me. Oh dear, self-deprecation's kicking in. To answer that question means I need to agree with the first part that I have a skill of creating simplicity. I don't know about that. I, th I think it comes from the writing and teaching and then thinking about thinking or metacognition. So uh, let's assume that I'm, let's assume that to you, your subjective reality of, or subjective perception of whatever you see from me, and I don't know if it's my baby drawings or talks or articles, is that there's some kind of simplicity in it. I think it's, I think part of that journey is to enjoy the confusion and any, anyone that you hear talking in public who you think is good and clear any, I would say any of them, but most of them, have probably had years and years of writing and talking. So that when you ask them a question, they're able to retrieve uh, a network of sentences and themes and, and ideas that they've sat on for a very long time and marinated on. 
And the way to develop that is through constant, well, off frequent observation analysis and then thinking about how you think. And then there are writing techniques or speaking techniques. If you're looking at someone who speaks and you think they're speaking in a clear manner, perhaps they talk like this. They slow their cadence down and they're very specific with how they talk and they try to use short words and that feels simple and clear to you. It's also a bit of a hypnosis trick, that one, I think. Uh, and then the writing techniques are really just playing with structures such as X is Y. Because I could ramble and ramble and ramble. I'm going to come up with something weird sitting. I decided to sit down in Central Park, Upper West Side now, around 96th Street. I'm looking at trees, the sun's coming through, and I'm going to come up with some corny-ass thing about trees and nature, aren't I? It's totally what's going to happen. I don't want to do that. How's about squirrels? What could you say about squirrels? Let's just force some words together and see if this is simple for you. So squirrels run up and down trees in Central Park and they run around in circles. I'm watching two doing it right now. So you could, oh, this is a bit of a party trick, but it's too simple. You could talk about how squirrels know what life is. That's the premise. Squirrels know what life is because they don't overthink it. They run up and down trees all day, fetching what they need, and then they chase around each other around in circles. So that's the analogy. And then I would use those points to somehow connect to life or to the strategist's life. And then I rewrite. And then I work out what I'm saying through the act of rewriting. <laughs> and, and then when I say it in public, next time you ask me about squirrels and trees, I'll be like, here's how squirrels are like a strategist's life. Okay, so I know I'm rambling and I know I'm fumbling, but I also don't want to be embarrassed about doing that in public because not all of us do it in public and it's, you kind of get an initial thought, you jam a few extra words in, you take the words out, you put new words in, you're trying to solve a problem, a sentence is a problem like a Rubik's Cube, you're just trying to click the words around. Then you work out why something is similar to something else if we're using analogies or an analogy or you work out what's interesting about squirrels and how they live and then you try to connect it to the strategy life for example and then you get the analogy and it can sound simple gosh wasn't that a complicated answer just i was just trying to prove your question wrong <laughs> all right pablo tester 17 i'm so overwhelmed by the advice everyone gives you're welcome how do i find insights you're oh, so cheeky. That's a cheeky question. So first of all, I think it's okay to feel overwhelmed. And that is probably the brain trying to reach for insights. So first of all, you need to have a point of view on what an insight is to you. For me, it's an unspoken human truth. Some kind of revelation or confession, potentially a taboo. It's structured like an idea where an idea combines things that don't usually belong together. And that's the mechanics of it. So I look at the mechanics and then I look at my subjective reaction to an insight. And the way that an insight is different to an idea is that an insight will make me want to change how I live, reorganize my life. So you got the mechanics of it, you've got the subjective feeling, and then you've got, does it drive me to action? Then you go to the other part of the question was, how do you find them? Well, you can find them by talking to people and just listening for the words that they say that are interesting building a safe environment for them to express themselves in, just probing and asking questions. Everyone's got insights in their heads. And it's amazing when you interview a lot of people, within 45 minutes, you will get four or five beautiful little sentences. Does that mean that it's a data-driven insight? Well, yes, it does. Does it mean that it's a bulletproof insight that could lead to a bulletproof strategy that's gonna be bulletproof in the world? No, because that's not a thing. So it's through talking to people, through listening to people, through reading non-fiction and fiction books, filling your brain with stuff, and then finding patterns. And if you get stuck, you can be absurd, you can be rude, you can be stupid, and just see what words pop out as clean sentences. It's all a mess until it isn't. 
Now the thing is that for someone who's new to the strategy live and sees other people who they think are being clear-headed, perhaps for that person to say it's all a mess until it isn't, perhaps that's an insight for a person. It might be new to you. If you've done the work for a long time, it's not new to you, but it might be for you. Okay, so if it's a mess until it isn't, for that to be an insight, it means I'm gonna change how I behave around the mess. What am I gonna do? I'm gonna create more mess. For me, I get pieces of paper and I just scribble phrases and words that appear. When I do interviews, and I've done um, through the, th th there'll be about a six week period where I probably will have interviewed 70 people. I type up everything as I go, I don't record them. I type them up verbatim. I got quick little fingers because I grew up on the internet. And I also will write down words or phrases that they say that, that stick with me. And they could be, it could just be one page. I, write could, I might decide to write really small or it could be four or five blank loose pieces of paper where I will write big words or phrases, uh, big words and circle them, see how they fit with each other. And I'm like, that's interesting. That fits with this other thing. But those two things seem to fit in this category that no one had explicitly addressed. So I create more mess and then I play with it. You know, if you're just starting out, that kind of answer is going to be frustrating. But it's, it's, I'm not going to say it's the truth, but it's honest to me. Rebeccanomics, what differentiates strategists at different levels, e.g. mid, senior, and director? I will say this, I don't believe in the title junior strategist. Do you ever want to go to a junior doctor? Would you ever want to go to a junior doctor? Which is not to say that doctors and strategists do as like work that's as important but I just I'm like just be if, you, if you're gonna be a strategist be a strategist the thing with junior is to give this sense of hierarchy and need to progress and to be obedient to the system and to the people to progress progress mid senior and director uh, I, I know there are some really cool matrices from Undercurrent has one that's done the rounds for a while and there was another one that I found again recently. Oh my gosh, I've forgotten your name. Oh, David, 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 Publicis maybe, England. Eesh, I'm so sorry. Uh, so there are a couple of these matrices around and, and I'm like, yeah, I get it. Because here's the thing, in its simplest form, let's see what comes out now. Strategy is about finding out things creating new patterns with them, arguing for them, trying to get them into the world and watching how they respond in the world so you can improve them. There, I think there were five things that I just said there. And that's a very like layman or secular way of looking at it, but that's how I look at it. So whatever gets you where you need to go. And the, the thing that where I see these matrices, I'm like, it's amazing. The people whose brains put those together are amazing brains. but. By the time you're director, I want you to be doing those, I would want you to be doing those five things by yourself. And we can throw in that things like the client sees you as a leader of a project, that they don't need to uh, manage up or above you very often, that you're relatively independent. So I think if you look at the five things I mentioned, it's can that person lead those five things on a project and have, have a level of trust within their team and within their client and is the work good? That's how I look at it. Again, closer to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu than other martial arts where you're performing in front of the mirror and you've got to do the kata or the form in a particular way and then you get to pro progress. Whereas Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you need to be a better fighter. <laughs> All right, there's an anonymous one. This will be the last one. Someone has just moved to a new job this person is used to being a quote-unquote traditional planner. They've moved to more of a social purpose focused agency and that was a move that the person's interested in. However, they don't find themselves doing much planning. It's more about raising money. So the question then is, should I stick it out and not job hop because the person's just moved cities? Should I stick it out or should I job hop? I think there's a, what comes to mind is, uh, there's a few things that come to mind. One, are you in a toxic environment? Are you dealing with passive aggressive and abusive people? If yes, 
then urgently move. If no, then see what you can learn from this experience while meeting people in a new city. Moving cities is difficult, okay? I know a lot of us take, we know it's difficult, but we see every, a lot of other people doing it, especially in this industry. And you're like, oh, it's just something I need to do. It's difficult, okay? You don't have your social ties necessarily. Your routines are different. Culture's different. Even moving cities in a small country. Okay, but if it's not toxic, then don't feel a panic. If it is toxic, consider feeling a panic. Two, is your diagnosis of a situation that you've just joined, is it really, really real? Is there a way to practice what you think is quote unquote traditional planning there? What would you need to do to get, get it to happen? If it's a in relatively informal, uh, culture could you say hey could I could we or I just break off a project and try a couple of things differently here do you want to do lunch and learns where we go through planning skills and obviously as a new person you've got to be a little bit careful that you don't patronize people or that people don't feel patronized you know like I'm new I'm going to teach you how to do this I might have given people those vibes over the year, years but it's not something that I set out to do Uh, so, so yeah, if it's toxic, urgently try to work out how to move on. Otherwise, see if you can apply what you want to do to this job. The third thing would be to see, like it is difficult if your portfolio doesn't update while you're in a place that can make it difficult to move in the future. If you're early-ish in a career, people might be forgiving, but the question then is, is there something to do with traditional planning that you could really throw your your mind that to try to get something that's portfolio worthy and not not just for the portfolio but because you think it will benefit the client that could be interviewing 10 or 20 people on a project for example because then you're at least able to talk about research and then the final one I would say but well, it's two more keep exploring question whether you're actually ever going to find what you really want to find work out where you think it is and then talk to people there if you can and see if it really is there because sometimes you don't know until you're in there and then the fifth one would be to ensure that you keep exploring your own self-expression and creativity and don't try not to allow a, a work situation that you entered into with good intentions and it doesn't feel you might feel lied to I don't know but if you feel lied to you might start to doubt your ability to make judgments and decisions about your career and just be careful of that dark place. Try to stay active within the community that you're in or to create a new, join, find a community that you want to be active in and then work out how to continue to express. Oh, there's one last question. Jeremy Carson, how many ways did you break down your strategy diagram before how it is today? That's what I'm calling the four points. So that's the problem inside advantage strategy diagram. I mean, it's a, it's a funny question because it's pretty straightforward and where it initially came from a particular agency in New York that wasn't really into process but wanted to do strategy and rather than fight it I just said look here are four, th four things that I think are forcing functions to help us ask better questions get to better work get some insights create strategy that uh, an idea a campaign or a digital idea or whatever we want to call it could actually stand on and so it kind of just popped out of that and then I've just added things to it. But you know, I wouldn't want anybody to see that and go, wow, that's incredible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like I want you to see value in it. That would be disingenuous. But you know, I, I've, been, I've talked to a few people lately and I've you know, helped people generate their own little strategy models based on their own philosophies to strategy which is largely from me asking them questions and listening to how they respond and the language that they use to express why they're in strategy and they, what they think it is and then to hear them talk through a project or yeah some research that they've done and hear what they've drawn upon so I don't think it's difficult to come up with frameworks and mine's really a coping mechanism for being in uh, cultures that were either excessively process oriented or very process skeptic also from being in places that were good at strategy and world-class with creative work knowing that sometimes the ideas the world-class creative ideas that would do well at, at the awards just came from a quick chat in the corridor with a client so you kind of see 
you, you sort of see where this work comes from. And it's usually because the brains are hardwired for craziness and extremes and provocative thoughts and, 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 and have high expectations about doing great creative work all the time. And I feel that places that are good tend to know that and places that are trying to work it out spend a lot of time on reorgs and process and politics and bureaucracy and administration uh, because they think that, that's, that you can kind of process your way to great thinking. And I'm not sure about that. All right, folks, thank you for, uh, thank you for listening to that. I had some recording challenges, but it's been a beautiful day. The sun's going to go down soon. keep at it I know we're about to hit a new year uh, I might run I might run one of these things or a couple of sessions on thinking about the future which is something I'm trying to improve at as well make some art remember as we approach the holiday season in parts of the world that you're probably not going to change people when you go back home or when you invite people to your place the question is can you enjoy them and if not you can always go for a long walk peace <laughs>